You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. A series on identity. Boy, that word right there can open the door to a lot of conversations today, can it? Identity. It's kind of actually now maybe a little bit of a trigger word in our culture. But honestly, it's, it's really a word or a concept that we've always wrestled with, right? Because it's asking the basic question, who am I? Who am I? You know, oftentimes when I speak, sometimes you know, like, well, it's the word of God, it's for everybody, but sometimes it's kind of more maybe specifically for people who are going through a rough time or, or uh, who are struggling, restless, you know how it is. But today, as we talk about identity, I am 100% confident that everybody in this room has wrestled with this question. Who am I? Identity relates to our basic values that then dictate the, the choices that we make. And then those choices reflect back on who we are and and what we value. I mean, honestly, it's, for example, we can assume that an investment, make, an investment banker values, man, first service was a lot more chatty. <laughs> Money, right? Um, a, t- a, a, a college professor values education and helping students. And, and we know that We all hold multiple identities. We see ourselves as uh, a parent, a teacher, a a friend. This identity makeup, it's it's so often so many things. It's received indirectly from parents, peers, and other role models. It's amazing how children even come to define themselves, define themselves in terms of how they think their parents see them. It's a fascinating thing if you want to dive into that some other time. If their parents see them as, as a nuisance or, God forbid, worthless or whatever, it begins to even shape their own identity of themselves. And this morning, when you look in the mirror, as we have a mirror, and obviously, we get up in the morning, and you guys get to be uh, all service long, right? <laughs> if I would have only known, right? That's what you're asking yourself. Like, obviously, we, hair, wrinkles, gray hair, loss of hair, those are the things that we look at first, right? Uh, I need to get a haircut. Um, And I'll just be honest with you, I shave it really short around the sides, not because I was in the Marines or want to be in the Marines. I'm going bald up here, so I'm trying to hide it. (laughs) But I get up in the morning, and obviously I notice those things. We all notice those things. But honestly, if you stopped and stood in the mirror for a while, who am I starts to surface, doesn't it? those identity markers. Maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and you see a success or you think about your mistakes. Maybe it's your resume or your relationships or what you've accomplished, maybe what you've acquired. You may even define yourself or find your identity in the things that you desire 
like a thrill seeker, right? You've met those people. Have you ever been around those people that like you can talk to them within five minutes? You know these people are thrill seekers because they can't stop. They, they tell you quickly like, yeah, I jumped off a mountain, you know, and stuff like that. And they define themselves, their identity is in this, this desire to just live on the edge, right? Maybe that's you. Maybe you look at yourself and your life has been full of suffering. And that's how you, you just define yourself and And so often what we do is we take our identity, our image, and we begin to put a name, a label on it. I mean, think about the labels you see every day, right? We see these all over the place. They're in your house somewhere, I'm sure. Hopefully not more than a few of them are in your house. But you see these, and you know that label is identifying that this is potentially dangerous. It's powerful. It's explosive. Handle with care, right? The labels are identifying what that particular substance is and what it can do. And honestly, that's what, I actually put another one up here just because I like to say this. Frigili. Is everybody tracking with me? Frigili. I just kind of like to say that, but. Remember the yearbooks? Do they still do yearbooks? High school, like, We did labels in there, identifiers, right? Remember, especially senior class? Most likely, you know what I'm talking about. Or class clown, right? Or most likely to be an athlete or a millionaire or an actor. And it's amazing how we do this. And labels become powerful things. In fact, honestly, back to Uh, to kids and education, they actually do say to be careful with how we label our kids in in our school systems, that if you label a kid as slow, guess what? They'll follow that label. If you label a kid as advanced, they'll increase in their performance. I've got one of those in my house. The problem is he knows it. And so then he's always like, well, I'm advanced. I'm like, we have created a monster. (laughs) By the very virtue of your attitude here, you are not advanced. (laughs) You are a caveman. (laughs) But we do this, right? In fact, I just tried to give you a, a visual object lesson today. If you look in the mirror and you look longer than seeing your hair and your skin. Like, no doubt things would surface. I've just thrown a few up. There's, there's many. Maybe you look at yourself and maybe you see yourself as a parent. It's one of the first things you identify yourself as. I'm a parent. That's my identity. That's, that's what I do. Maybe smart. Maybe you see yourself because you're wealthy and how you picture yourself, how you identify yourself as you know, that or talented or kind, poor. Maybe you see yourself, you're just poor and you see it. And like, that's when you look in the mirror, you just, uh, maybe, maybe moral. Maybe like you look at yourself and like, I'm a pretty good dude. I think I do a lot of good things or funny or friendly, athletic, ugly, beautiful. Heck, even our culture is pushing us towards seeing ourselves as Democrat or Republican, Right? It's amazing how I get in these conversations with people and like you can tell they're trying to figure it out. 
little code words or little phrases, see how you're going to respond. And then as soon as they, they think they know, they slap a label on you. Right? And then they see you. They identify you according to that, that label. I want to welcome you to Ephesus. Ephesus is not a town of a couple dusty streets with a few dozen houses, goats, and donkeys. In its day, Ephesus is like Hong Kong, Tokyo, even New York City. It's, it's believed to have been maybe the fourth largest city in the ancient world, in the first century world. It's not unlike our culture. And the identities that they were wrestling with are the same identities we wrestle with. Technology's changed, things have advanced, but it still remains the same. Paul walks into this place, this eclectic um, happening, cutting edge, lots of ideas, smart, gifted, talented, wealthy, uh, the, the, the whole wide spectrum, just not unlike where we live. He begins to preach about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Jesus movement begins in this town, and then it springs up in villages around this town. He's actually there for a couple years. He pastors them for a couple years, and he, he left people that he had seen come into this new life in Christ. But as we all know, that like even though we come into a new life, the work of then changing old habits and old lifestyles, old ways of thinking is the process of a long time. And so they're wrestling with this. And he's left and he hears about like, hey, you know, they're still figuring it out. They're still trying to know what to do. And so he writes this letter back and it's to the Ephesians. I kind of believe it's just to the region. It got passed around. And he's trying to remind them Give them a refresher course on what it means to follow Jesus, what the gospel was, and how they should orient or reorient their life around that. And it's amazing how he does it. This book is six chapters. And the first three chapters, he doesn't tell them to do anything. He just reminds them of their identity in Christ. Because he know, the Lord knows that what we need to know first is who we are. Who am I? What do I need to know about that? And you know, as we've walked, I and mean, basically he, he goes through and he, he talks about identity. Remember how, who you are. Remember whose you are. Remember how God loves you. In fact, we've tried to walk through. I, I did this first service, so it worked, if I can pull these stupid things off. But I, I think I just want to like create this mirror that hopefully this is what overimposes itself. Yeah. You're not going to change being a parent. I don't want to change being a parent. I'm happy to have that as part of my identity. But what Paul's trying to do is say, what is your, all these things, what are they anchored to? There's a core identity of who you are, and that's, that's what he shares in, in, uh, in the first three chapters of Ephesians. I knew I was going to have trouble with this. Remember, first, first chapter, first, you know, six or six verses. Well, oh, no. It's obvious he reminds them they're wanted. They're wanted. God chose you, every one of you. He chose not to forsake this world. 
He chose to love this world. He wants you. He's got a plan for your life. He chose us before the foundation of the world and he chose us, he wants us to be holy in him, right? Like you are wanted, every single one of you. Then he talks about the fact, talks about the redemption of Jesus Christ that he uses this this phraseology that talks about how valuable you and I are, that God himself becomes a man and dies for us, pays the price for our sin. That's who you are. When you look in the mirror, you should be seeing things like wanted, I'm valuable. Christ himself died for me, came to this earth for me, right? Talked about then the connection we have with the Holy Spirit that we are a We are in Christ through this person of the Holy Spirit and we can have confidence each and every day because of the Spirit in our life of what he can do with us now, of who we are in him now. It's this down payment and what is to come, right? Carrie so adequately last week talked about as Paul prays in that last part of chapter one, he prays things that we would know our identity is one of that's hopeful. That's who you are in Christ. I don't know what's going on in your life. It's good, bad, or ugly, indifferent, routine, mundane. But every day, if you will look in the mirror and look past the surface, you have every reason to be hopeful today. That's what Paul prays, that they would understand the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And then he prays about the great power that he has given to us. We are people Like Paul says in Romans chapter eight, we are more than overcomers, right? Power is a theme in Ephesians. It's something that Paul wants them to grab a hold of. Because you are in Christ, this is what you have at your disposal. And he he prays, I just pray that they would grab a hold of this, this incomparable great power for us who believe. And so as we turn the pages to chapter two, I I just want to remind you of one other thing today that I hope becomes or is your identity, that it overimposes itself on all the other things, all the other labels, that this is actually who at the core of who you are, this is who you are. Let's read Ephesians chapter two, verse one. You were dead. Oh, that's encouraging. What kind of identity is that? You were dead through the trespasses and sins and once you weren't lived. The word dead is dead. Following the course of this, earth, of this world. That's why you're dead. You followed the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is work among those who are disobedient. All of us, all means all, all of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. Paul's like, this is who you were. Can I take a minute to remind you people as I'm trying to help you remember your identity in Christ to grab a hold of who he is? Remember who you were. 
So oftentimes in my own life, as I'm frustrated with um, just having to learn lessons again and again, amen? And, and, and maybe struggles or wrestling with stuff that I know, come on, Chip. But there's these moments when the Lord reminds me of who I was. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, for you to grab a hold of this identity marker, this label that needs to be on your heart, I, I want to remind you that you were dead. In fact, the whole world has been dead. Obviously, Paul is, is talking about something other than physical. A being might be alive in one sense, but dead in another to be spiritually dead here does not mean that you're physically dead, socially dead, psychologically dead. Yet it is a real death, a dead death, nevertheless. The most vital part of a man's personality, his spirit, is dead to the most important factor in life, God himself. In fact, I think he says it so eloquently in chapter four, verse 18, when he says that we were darkened in our understanding and because of that, we were dead. We were excluded from the life of God. That's what it means to be dead, to be excluded from the life of God. Paul reminds us that the natural state of every man and every woman during any age or time is to be spiritually dead. This is a normal, universal truth. No one is born a Christian. <gasps> you okay? <laughs> Every human being is born into sin. Have you ever been a parent? Are you following me here? Like as lovely and beautiful and precious and like give my life for my kids, it's pretty obvious after a little while, amen? You never had to teach a kid to be selfish, amen? I had to teach them to share. I mean, just the manifestation of our fallenness even starts to come out at one and two and three. Mine! Right? And we're coming along trying to, to train them to not do that. We're training them because each and every one of us were born with a bent to sin. That's what Paul's saying is listen, we were all dead. Yeah, some of you don't raise your hand, but there was a phenomenon about 10 years ago, and I kept seeing the advertisement for it, but it was this show called The Walking Dead. I lasted like three minutes. Just not my jam. Some of you, I think, like that stuff, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tease you about it. But the idea, you know, like, that's who we have been. We have been dead men walking. He reminds us that who we are constituted in a human being is far bigger than what we taste, touch, smell, all those things. That in fact, the most important factor of our life, our spirit, is dead. Right? Think about being dead. Now, hold on. Let me back up. That's why the phrase, the wages of sin is death, is so intriguing to me because it's like 
we're living in this deadness, and it's only producing what then is going to be forever deadness. The wages of sin is death. Everything excluded from the life of God is dead. Obviously, there's this common grace of God in creation, right? This you wake up, you look around, you experience the order and the beauty and the vastness of this creation, and it's a grace to us that's calling to us. The conscience we've been born with, this prevenient grace of God that's working in so many ways, the grace that I saw in my grandma and grandpa's life, my mom and dad's, all those believers that were showing me something better, that were showing me that I didn't have to live dead Right, This is all the grace of God, the spirit wooing me and convicting me and calling to me. Like this world, we're born bent and we are in deadness, but all around us, grace is reaching to us. That's what God does. And yet, let me explain it like this, maybe. I might get in trouble with this, but... So before I was with Nicole, <laughs> that's a, that's a, some of you are like, what's he gonna say? So when I was, before I was with Nicole, I was relationally dead. I was. There was no life in me relationally with someone. I'm dead. Now I look around and I see all these great relationships and I, I desire it. There's a desire, right? I, uh, I have this, this innate image of God desire to have companionship, right? And so there's this wrestling inside of me, but I'm dead. Like, I'm living in all these different ways, but relationally, there's nothing going on, right? And my friends would have looked at me like I was crazy if I'd have talked about somebody and it would be make-believe, right? Like, no, bro, nothing's going on. Nicole comes into my life. This analogy, you could do a lot of things, but I didn't deserve it. Like, I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it. It came into my life. And there was this moment where I could continue in my deadness, or when I saw her, and I still remember, I thought she was 17. She was 21. Wow. And then as I was around her, I began to have this, whew, and yet I was still dead until I responded to the opportunity. And then her and I began to share in relationship. And what was nothing was dead relationally, all of a sudden became alive and blossomed into love, right? Paul's saying that we all are spiritually dead. In verse four, I want to remind you, you were dead. This is who we are. But God, who is rich in love, rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He's like, listen, you're dead. Dead people can't fix it. 
They can desire, they can see, they can, but dead people are dead for a reason. They can't do, and yet God, and, and, and the way this, the, the construction of the Greek through here is, it's crediting God with all the action required to, to, to bring salvation to us, to bring grace to us. God graciously loves and extends himself to us. And when we're dead and can't do anything about it, God does what is needed by giving himself for loving us and offering himself to us. This was, you know, the Old Testament had been building toward this theme. Ezekiel, the prophet, had shared an idea like this. He said uh, that, that a new heart I will give you, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's this idea of living thing with God. And, and then it's Jesus early on as he's in this important conversation with a religious leader. Like, Natural, spiritual. Paul always talks about the natural man, the spiritual man. And the, this religious leader is, is living in this natural thing. And, and the Lord, he has this conversation. And he's like, he's obvious he's attracted to who Jesus was. And, and Jesus just quite simply looks at him and says words like this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. That's what we're interested in, right? That's what I'm interested in. The kingdom of God. Well, no one can see it unless without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after growing old? Natural man, you know? He like says, can anyone go a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus is like, come on, man. Didn't you pay attention? Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not, be astonished, do not be astonished when I say to you, you must be born again. And so when Paul writes, listen, remember who you are, remember what Christ does, is he makes us alive in Christ Jesus. I would remind you of this statement. Maybe this is the only thing you need to hear. We need more than improvement. We need resurrection. We are people of the resurrected Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. What we need is a resurrection. My, one of my biggest fears as a pastor is that I pastor people who never catch a hold of this whole Christian thing, the whole gospels and book of Acts and epistles teaching this thought that really what this whole thing is about is coming into relationship with God through the person and power of his Holy Spirit. I'm so worried that I'm going to pastor people who think that if they meet a checklist and they have good morality. Can I remind you that if, if morality is the baseline for acceptance with God, then you haven't read the, King, or the Sermon on the Mount? Because what Jesus invites us into to follow him, there is no humanly way possible you and I could ever do that on our own. 
Amen? I mean, you don't have to say amen, but good luck. No way. Morality becomes a, a, a very superficial baseline. The goal becomes Christ-likeness, which just blows morality out of the water. It's like, duh. Yeah, you're moral. How about being Christ-like? How about doing things that like don't make sense in the, you know? And this can only happen if you and I are alive in Christ. Listen to as our identity changes from death to life. Your label says alive. I went through a period of time when I was a wayward kid, convicted of my sin, realized that if I didn't, if I didn't follow Jesus, my life was going to be an absolute wreck. Amen? And uh, decided to follow Jesus, but for a lot of factors, I didn't understand relationship with God. And so for the first, I don't know, couple years of trying to follow God, I didn't understand this dynamic of the Holy Spirit. I just tried to, to do all the good things. And I kept getting frustrated when I fell short. I just did. The Lord is so gracious, but as I immerse myself in his word, I begin to realize that the New Testament, Romans chapter eight, we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Therefore, there is no, now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, right? The law of sin and death, the law of life and the spirit. And I begin to realize what I needed. I thought it was very simple. Do the right thing, ask God to forgive me of my sins, kind of thing right? Feel better about my life. When God was inviting me into a whole new life, but that life was only possible as I gave myself to him and his Holy Spirit. I was alive in Jesus. It's what Jesus said being born from above is. There is a, there is a, I want to say this exactly right and I can't, because for all of us, it's a little different. Some, it's very quick. Some, it's a little. But there becomes this point in our life when our soul becomes alive to Jesus. And that's who we become. That's what energizes us. And I'm connected to God himself through the person of the indwelling spirit. And this is what Paul reminds him. This is your label. This is your identity. You're alive. Alive. And because you're alive now, what God wants to do in your life is possible. Purpose, meaning, working together. We're going to walk in next, next week to, you know, um, how, how he's brought this wonderful church together, like just all different peoples and all this stuff. You can navigate that and be a part of that because Christ Jesus is in your heart and life. Listen to as he finishes this. By grace have you been saved through faith and he raised us up with him and seated with us, 
us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he, may sh- he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This sounds like a pretty good God, doesn't it? Immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. What a stark contrast to the gods of the Ephesian culture. <laughs> this is beautiful. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. He's saying, listen, dead people can't make themselves alive. It's only opening your heart to the one who gives life. Just like with Nicole, I had to respond to her. I still would have been dead unless I responded, right? But God is graciously offering life. And it's his love that is the, the, the factor here. Not your merit, not your ability. None of that matters. Every one of us today is a candidate for the grace of Jesus Christ because the love of God. You don't need to know more or less. You just need to be willing to say, you know what? I see my deadness, my self-centered, the I principle in my life, and I'm willing to repent and turn from that and begin to walk toward Jesus Christ and the life that he has for me as he's in my life. In fact, he finishes this way. This is the verse I shared with you on the night I came to talk to you before I was hired. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand to be our way of life. You see, when he comes in and makes us alive, just the natural thing that flows out of it is a life full of good works. Like, I'm not trying to do good works. I'm trying to connect to Jesus. And as I stay in him, in Christ, as I stay connected to the spirit, as I allow the spirit to energize, and that's what he's going to talk about later, be filled with the spirit. It's this idea of letting your sails be filled. Let yourself be permeated with the spirit. Let yourself be energized by the spirit. As I'm doing that, well, then good grief I can't help but live out the Jesus life with my family, with my friends, with my coworkers, with my church body as we are a light to the world. The question is, is do you know what it is to be alive? This is the label, the identity of a Christian. Would you stand with me this morning? Maybe as I've talked today, I know that we like lists, don't we? We like, tell me three things to do, and then I know I did it, and I know I'm good. Right? I like that. That's why religion is so popular. And yet what Christ invites us into, God himself invites us into, is much deeper than that. It's an opening of our heart to allow him in. 
It's a belief and trust in the person of the Holy Spirit. Like that's a radical thing. The world looks on and says, what are you talking about, spirit? And yet, for you to not be dead anymore is for you to believe that his Holy Spirit can make you alive. And I just wonder as I've talked, like, it just obviously leads itself to to just have a moment of prayer. And here's my ask of you. If what I've talked about today is totally foreign to you, would you come and talk to me? Would you talk to one of our staff? Would you allow the Lord to begin to help you understand what it means to be alive in Christ Jesus? Maybe right now, just as we pray, you're just saying, Lord, I, I'm not sure I grab a hold of all that, but I, I, I want that. Would you open your heart? Would you, by faith, we're saved by grace through faith? Would you just respond to him? Father, single greatest reality in my life has been being made alive in you. It's the hope of everything to a living relationship with God. Please help us to be a people who experience this, know this. Lord, if as we've talked through this passage, if somebody's just thought, I don't really know if I know what that is. I direct them to a person or in prayer, you're able to show them. Maybe even right now, help them just to say in their heart, I want that, I respond to that. I want you in me. This is a part of what it means to be in Christ. To be alive in Christ Jesus. It's way more than a feeling. My relationship with Nicole is living and sometimes there's no feelings. Doesn't mean it's not there. There's not a real. Lord, help us to see what this means. I pray. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, amen. As you go, I do encourage you, if you have questions about this, please see me, see someone else. Don't ever forget, he calls us to be alive in Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.